Steelers dead last in the league in rushing. And they throw the horrible snap all the way back to the two-yard line, and the Browns bounce it into the end zone where they wind up with a touchdown. Hello, and welcome to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. My name is Nick Zararis. It is extremely late Sunday night into Monday morning. Wrapped up watching my Cleveland Browns, led by Baker Mayfield, pulling off one of the biggest wild card weekend upsets of recent memory. But before I get to a quick episode, won't be that long today, probably half hour or so. Just a couple quick thoughts about the wild card round. Growing the podcast organically. Couple more listens every single week helps a lot. Tell someone about it, spread it, leave a review, subscribe, all the good stuff. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Audio Boom, everywhere podcasts are. This podcast can be found. We're trying to help make the public a little smarter. Do the right thing. It's one of the things I want to talk about on the podcast today. Now, just going to jump right into it. Don't really have an organized rundown, just a couple of things I wrote down over the last two days throughout the course of watching the games. Number one, most importantly, NFL coaches are just freaking cowards, man. How many decisions did you see this week from a coach who was too scared to roll the dice and make a play? I understand the conservative nature of a football coach that the longer you keep the game alive, the longer you are technically still alive in the game. And long term, the more close calls you have, the better chances you have of keeping your job for a long time, which is the ultimate goal of a football coach is job security because it's so hard to secure. Once you get immunity, though, you start doing reckless things. You, you end up like Doug Peterson in Philadelphia, who won one Super Bowl and got nuts. You end up like Pete Carroll in Seattle, who just doesn't coach his team right. He's got one of the five best quarterbacks in the league. He's got a top 10 receiver, he's got a top 5 deep threat, and the Seahawks run their offense like it's 2009. There's a fundamental misunderstanding of what how teams win in today's league. So often when you're watching a broadcast, you'll see the color analyst talking about a graphic saying, the number of rushing attempts correlated in the, the number of rushing attempts in games won. That does not just because a team ran the ball 20 times does not mean they won the game. You, that stat misses the greater context of situational football, what you're doing with the ball. You have 20 rushing attempts in games you win, because more likely than not, when you have the ball at the end of the game, you're just rushing attempts, running the play clock all the way down to 3-4 seconds, running your play, rushing attempts that way. Now, that's not to say you can't win the win in the NFL by running the ball. It's a feasible strategy. We saw the Ravens do it today against Tennessee, where they won 20-13. Uh, to 13. They used their short running game, they used Lamar as a runner to open up their short passing game, and they eked it out against Tennessee. It was not pretty, but they found a way to win using running the ball as their primary means of offense, because Lamar is such a dynamic runner of the football. And it opened up their passing game because a lot of their passing plays come out of similar looks that their running plays do, where they'll have Lamar and pistol or shotgun, and they have running backs to come across for play action, where he's only got to take one step, sidearm throw, where he had, I remember one specifically that stands out, where he had Dobbins to his right, and 
no, excuse me, Dobbins to his left, and everybody on the formation is going to the right, except for Mark Andrews, who took a short hitch, turned around, ball hit him in the chest, seven-yard gain. Seven-yard gain to a tight end on, I think it was first and ten, isn't really that consequential in the greater scheme of things, but it's important for the greater con context of moving the ball. You always want to be in second and third and manageable. When you end up in those longer situations where it's second and seven, third and seven, third and eight, if you're in that territory, the defense knows you have to throw the ball, which limits what you can do on offense as a play caller. Because since the defense knows you have to throw the ball, they can either A, send pressure and make your quarterback's job a lot more difficult, or B, they can drop coverage and make sure and keep it so that no one is open down the field. There's a few ways to pursue that on offense. You wanna always, you don't want to have tendencies. One of the problems Tennessee had today, especially, I think what Tennessee's done with Ryan Tannehill is nothing short of remarkable. The career rehab he's gone through, and yes, Tannehill did not have a great game today, but it's worth pointing out the small sample size of playoff games, and that it's not reflective of a player's true talent level because there's such a small sample size. I have this discussion every single year in the hockey playoffs that the best team doesn't always win, especially in hockey, because there's such a wide variance in outcomes because hockey has so many random inputs to it that lead to different outcomes. Similar thing in football. Playoff football, turnovers, that kind of, turnovers can swing a game. You saw it in the Tennessee game, a couple bad throws from Tannehill, not great. But back to the situational football, the coaches being cowards, Tennessee went into that game with the mentality of, we are going to make this game as short as humanly possible, or two or three touchdowns will win this game. They ran the ball on first down more than 10 times. So you know what that does? That does two things. Number one, it tells the defense that it's first down, here comes Derrick Henry, we don't have to worry about the pass here, it's not a threat. And two, it sets up second and nine, second and six. Then that leads to third and eight, third and six, third and five, if you get an incompletion. And it makes Tannehill's job harder. And Baltimore, which likes to send pressure, can send pressure, or they can have guys like Humphrey and Peters drop back in coverage, which they're also apt at doing. Coaches playing not to lose is why they lost this weekend. The ones that stick out glaringly bad, glaringly bad, are Pete Carroll with the Seahawks and... Frank Reich with the Colts. Hell, you can make an argument. Yeah, Pete Carroll with Seattle. Frank Reich with the Colts. And I'd say Rabel with Tennessee. Granted, it was a one-score game today between the Titans and Ravens. But I'm just going to run through these quickly. For Seattle, to lose a game to Jared Goff, who has a thumb with pins in it because he had surgery less than 10 days ago, to lose... In a game where he only had 100-something yards passing, like 108-something in that ballpark, unacceptable. You knew coming into that game that the Rams were going to pound the ball down Seattle's throat. Der Cam Akers finished with 27, 28 rushing attempts, something in that neighborhood. Close to 30 rushing attempts in 2021, which is unheard of. And Seattle, it's like they didn't expect the, running, the Rams to run the ball. We know the Rams are a run-first offense. For all the smoke and mirrors that Sean McVay has in his offense, 
they only have about 10 to 15 offensive plays. It's just that the window dressing is different, where they'll line up in a specific way. Then there'll be a pre-snap motion. There'll be play action. There'll be a bootleg. Something in that ballpark to just confuse the defense. But all the plays stem from the same base formations. So Seattle has no excuse for getting for A, just not being prepared. And B, I don't get Pete Carroll. He's got one of the best quarterbacks in the league. But for some reason, he still feels like his best chance at winning a game is pounding the ball with with Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde 25, 30 times in a game and putting Russ in those awful situations. Seattle gave up a lot the last few years. They gave up draft picks to get Jamal Adams, who had a pretty rough game in coverage. I mean, yeah, he's playing with some pretty serious injuries. He's going to need surgery on both shoulders and his left hand. Seattle gave up a lot of draft capital to go get Jamal Adams and to trade for Carlos Dunlap at the trade deadline this year. Seattle is, I don't want to say they're running out of options because they still have Wilson, and as long as they have Wilson, they'll always be competitive because that's the perk of having an elite quarterback is they can make everyone around them better. I'm disappointed in Seattle because they had every opportunity to win that game against the Rams, and they just had nothing. That pick six rushed through on that bubble screen was egregious. Russell Wilson is better than that, and he knows that. But they were in bad situations that entire game where they were getting no push at the line of scrimmage to run the ball and setting up second and nine, second and ten. Then you have to throw twice, two incompletions, you're punting. And to, I get it. Punting the ball and playing defense, field position, makes sense in a vacuum. You cannot be punting in some of these situations that guys like Carroll... Vrabel, and Frank Reich punted over the course of this weekend. In the playoffs, there are a finite number of possessions, especially in these games with teams that have run-heavy offenses that are by design trying to shorten the game. You cannot punt the ball away because you don't know how soon you can get it back. Most of the defenses played pretty well this weekend. I mean, Tampa Bay's defense wasn't great, but Henneke was playing in garbage time. It was catch-up, soft coverage, that kind of thing. Pittsburgh's defense got had a pretty rough time. I mean, yeah, they were in short field situations, so it was kind of hard for them. But aside from Pittsburgh, everyone's defense was pretty decent this weekend. So I, I get the natural inclination to punt and try and play defense and get the ball back, but... At some point, you just got to trust your best player. And that's what's so frustrating about the situ- these situations. Like, especially Seattle. I'd even say, eh, you, you might be able to make the argument that someone else on Indianapolis's offense is the best player on their offense, not Rivers. And then Vrabel take... I keep getting into this argument with people that Derrick Henry is not the best player on the Titans, that it's Tannehill, because you looked at EPA, the expected points per attempt. I understand it's difficult for people who don't study analytics to try and understand what EPA means. So I'm going to give you the most succinct, simplest answer possible. Expected points per attempt means the number of points added per either rushing attempt or passing attempt. So the number of times a guy throws a ball or rushes a ball 
how many points each of those attempts is worth. In a vacuum, it might you might think that Derrick Henry is more important to the Titans' success as a team this year because they have such a play-action-heavy offense. And you would think Tannehill's a lot better at throwing the ball because the defense is thinking about Derrick Henry. Another misconception. Play-action is not incumbent upon effective running the ball. Warren Sharp, the f- analytics, fo- the football analytics genius himself, in the first page of his preview this year for the 2020-21 season, explained it very simple. Linebackers still bite on play action whether or not the other team is running the ball successfully. You're still getting more yards per pass attempt with play action than without because that half second of hesitation the defense has to make to respect the run buys your receivers time to get open down the field. Now, going back to my larger point about Henry and Tannehill. EPA-wise, it's not even close. Tannehill was 130-something. Derrick Henry was 40, I think 36 EPA expected points per attempt. So, it's not close. Tannehill should have the ball in his hands in these situations. You want to say, okay, I saw it a lot on Twitter today, especially amongst people who who know what they're talking about. I saw quite a few people on gambling Twitter whose stuff I like to read or their podcasts I like to listen to. Specifically, Stucky at Action Network, he mentioned, how do you have a third, a second and two, a third and two, and a fourth and two, and not run the ball with Derrick Henry one time in that span? I'll give you that one. You want to say, Derrick Henry, we need two yards, you're the best running back in the league, go get it? Fine. Larger picture, in those situations where Tannehill, where the Titans punted, egregious. They punted from plus 40. Rabel sent Brett Kern out there from the Baltimore 40-yard line and said, go Coffin Corner. That is flat-out unacceptable in a playoff game you're trying to win. I don't care how good you think your defense is, you cannot be giving away field position like that because you don't know many how many times you're going to get the ball. And look, I understand I am not an NFL head coach. I have never been a head coach. I've never been an assistant coach, a position coach, a scout, anything in that ballpark. The entire point of this podcast, the Upper Bowl GM podcast, is that sometimes there are decisions that even us up in the cheap seats can understand and ask, what the hell are you doing? Vrabel punting from the Raven 40-yard line, 100th percentile on the Cowardly Pun Index, what in God's name are you doing? I understand you had a hard time moving the football on offense against the Ravens. You, three touchdowns won that game. 20 points. It, yes, I know the Ravens have field goals instead of touchdowns, but not, not the point, not the point. 20 points, three touchdowns won that game. Tennessee could have gotten three touchdowns in that game. Didn't execute. Didn't get the playmakers the ball. A.J. Brown really had a hard time. He only had a handful of catches. One big play where he had a really nice catch. He had the one tutty, which was really impressive. I wanted... I, I went into that game expecting Baltimore to win based on how Baltimore's played in the last few months. I... 
I personally am still a little skeptical of Lamar as a quarterback. Just, okay, it sounds a little ridiculous to say about the reigning MVP of the league, but you see his limitations as a passer. If you drop guys in coverage and make him evaluate the defense, he has a hard time. When Lamar just, instead of waiting for someone to get open, just takes off, you saw what happened today against Tennessee. His receivers weren't doing a great job of getting open for him. But those few times, he just was decisive with the football, tucked it, and left and ran and just dipped is when Lamar's at his most dangerous. He's one of the most dynamic players I've ever seen in football. It's it, in it's video game stuff. It really is Madden stuff, where the way he's so electrifyingly fast and so elusive, where guys don't even get a hand on him, where he just makes people miss and shrugs them off so easily. I mean, I was watching the ESPN feed. ESPN had multiple feeds. I had the regular game feed on one TV. And then I had the coaches room, the film room one where it had Keyshawn Johnson, Tim Hasselback, Teddy Bruschi, and then they rotated the other spot back and forth between Booger, Booger McFarlane, Booger McFarlane, yeah, and Rex Ryan, and they all kept talking about Lamar's internal clock and saying occasionally he's he's waiting too long for someone to get open when there are clear running lanes in front of him. I un- and they all, especially I think it was Rex, made a point that I don't care how many times people tell you you're a quarterback, you need to be able to throw the ball. You're one of the fastest players in the league. If there is an alley in front of you for and there is green, go. Just don't even think about it, just go. If someone is open downfield, they'll be there the next time it's time to throw the ball. And in turn, when you run the ball effectively like Jackson did, it makes it easier to throw because the defense has to keep guys in the box to respect that run. When you have to spy Jackson, that's one less guy you can drop in coverage. There's an excellent explainer on how to call defense from... There's two I watched the other day when I was researching for something. There's one that Steve Spagnolo did, but the current Chiefs defensive coordinator, who's the Giants DC, he was the Rams head coach for a period of time, Spags did one, and then there's an Urban Meyer one. Where Urban Meyer's was at the Big Ten Network, and Spagnuolo's is with NFL Network. Just explaining what situation you use what defense, where you have to cover one, cover two, cover three, cover four, that kind of thing. Explaining how to use them. The way Spags explained it was, how many guys are you going to drop in coverage, and what is each guy's responsibility? If you're playing man coverage, every defender has to cover someone. And typically... You don't think about it like this as a fan, but most of the time, football is 11 on 10 because the quarterback gets rid of the ball and then no one touches the quarterback, whether it's a running play, especially on a running play. Jackson is one of the few guys where it truly is 11 on 11 and you have to be worried about where he is at all times on the field. It's what makes him so special as a runner and why Vrabel deciding to punt when they... No, a walk, two walking big plays are, whenever Jackson has, whenever Jackson gets over his fear of having to run the ball, I, I don't even want to call it a fear, I don't think that's fair to him, but whenever he decides to tuck in and run, there's very few people in the league who can keep up with him, that's why I don't get Vrabel punting and trying to play defense, he, Lamar was icing that game one way or another, I mean, I know Dobbins and Gus Edwards didn't have the best games conventionally running the ball, and I know Jackson's stat line is kind of ugly, 
from looking back at it now, but I always felt like the Ravens were going to win that game once they slowly got back in it. When they were down 10 nothing, I was a little nervous. I did go into the Gotham football chat and said, did we eat the cheese on Lamar again? Meaning, did we fall for the bait? Did we get got because we fell for him beating up on bad teams the last month and a half? No, we didn't fall for the cheese. The Ravens inched their way back into that game. As <laughs> Rex made a, a habit of saying this a lot on the film room stream, because I ended up gravitating more towards that, because I found it more informational. They were talking about things I was more interested in than the regular broadcast, which is a little too podcasty and conversationally for me. The film room version, and I did peep over to the ESPN Plus One for a little while, which had Dan Orlovsky and Mina Khan's. I popped back and forth between those because they were talking about things that were more important, like the situation, decision-making. I know Mina Kimes, there, <laughs> there's a meme of her with her, her hands outstretched, palms up, like they did what when Vrabel punted on the, Baltimore, on the Baltimore 40? I will talk about that at some point. I want to get a media-centric guest I could talk to talk with that about. I might get someone from I went to college with who... Maybe I could get... Ooh, okay, I have an idea. I'm, I'm writing that down. I, I will talk to that person and see if I can get them on the podcast to talk about it because they've done some TV in the past and it'll make for a good conversation. But point <laughs> point I was making before I got lost in that tangent was knowing what you want to do is important. I get that Vrabel thinks defense and running the ball is how to win... It worked for him in the regular season. I do think Vrabel is an above-average head coach. He needs work on his decision-making. I really wanted to get this off. If Pete Carroll was not Pete Carroll, yesterday's the Saturday loss to the Rams is probably a fireable offense. Uh, Narrative-wise, you can't be losing to a guy who had surgery seven days before the game. I mean... You could tell Goff wasn't ready to play. I mean, the Rams didn't have any other choice because, you know, their starting quarterback got got violently concussed by Jamal Adams on a late hit, which for some reason didn't get flagged, by the way. Poor John Walford. You can't lose, A, you can't lose to a divisional opponent in that way where the Rams just did what they do. They just ran the ball 28 times. That was just with Cam Akers 28 times. There were other rushing attempts. because I know Malcolm Brown ran the ball a couple times. There were other design runs for, excuse me, Bobby Trees, other guys. You can't lose to a divisional opponent like that. If you don't get outplayed, that's one thing. Get outcoached and outsituations. I know we all kind of collectively scoffed at McVay after losing that game to the Jets a couple weeks ago, but McVay does such a good job with the situational football. I'm in awe of how he calls offense because he's so in tune with what they need to keep ahead of the sticks. Want to give Brandon Staley a shout out for a masterful, masterful defensive game plan against the Seahawks. The way they took a, the way the Rams took away Seattle's play action game was masterful. The Rams did a great job of keeping everything in front of them. Seattle is dangerous when they take the top off the defense and Russell Wilson throws that beautiful rainbow. That Russell Wilson rainbow is one of the most beautiful sights in all of football. 
He did manage to hit it a couple of times. There was some busted coverage. That one Metcalf touchdown stands out where I think it was Darius Williams blew the coverage down the field. It happens. Good players make good plays. DK Metcalf in the scramble drill. He he saw Russ was in trouble under pressure, turned, ran back across the grain, got open, got the ball, touchdown. It's okay when shit like that happens. The Rams defense, masterful job. Hope Aaron Donald is good to go for their game this week against Green Bay. He landed weird on Russell Wilson late in that game on a sack. Remains to be seen if he's going to play. He was in and out of that game in the fourth quarter when the game was winding down for the Rams on defense. In and out. I think early report I saw was questionable, but he needed more tests. That was last night. I want to say that was like the 1 a.m. Adam Schefter injury hours tweet. I, I forget, but... Wrapping up that one, I just wish coaches weren't so scared, man. There's, okay, I've written this blog more than once in a couple of different variations. I've talked about it on this podcast more than once. When you played Madden as someone in high school, middle school, at a friend's house, what were the rules you always had to establish? When you had to punt and when you could go for it on fourth down. Why is that? Because no one was good at calling defense in Madden when you were a kid. Hell, no one is really good at calling defense now in Madden because it's so favorable for offense. If if you, as a 13-year-old, realized it was unfair for your friend to go for it on 4th and 2 on their own 28-yard line in the first quarter of a game, maybe you'd think a coach who's like, you know, job it is to win football games would figure out that, hey, it's kind of unfair if I have four tries to get 10 yards and every other team is only taking three tries to get 10 yards. Maybe I should call my offense like I have four plays to get 10 yards instead. Yeah, it's not appealing. It's definitely a little more risky and dangerous, but at some point, man, these are playoff games. You're trying to win a Super Bowl here. You can't be playing field position and defense in 2021. There just aren't defenses good enough. As good as the Rams' defense is, you can hit them. We saw I, we saw what the friggin' Jets did. The J-E-T-S Jets beat the number one defense in the league. Playing good offense, running the ball, keeping them off balance. And what was the other thing? Playing good defense, forcing Jared Goff into bad decisions, short field. All things that bleed into each other. Any team can be beat any Sunday brings me to the masterful job the Cleveland Browns put in. I did not expect anything close to this from the Browns. Yes, a lot, a lot of their success tonight came on just mind-bogglingly bad decisions and plays from Pittsburgh, whether it was the fumble, the first play of the game, any of the Roethlisberger interceptions, which were all horrendous, the Browns took care of business. I was on this podcast on Friday with Trevor, and we I, Trevor said it, Juju Smith-Schuster said it, the Browns are the Browns until they are no longer the Browns, and the Browns are no longer the Browns. I don't expect much from them going into Kansas City next weekend in the divisional round, but I have to emphasize just how impressive it was that Cleveland came out and took care of business tonight. 
in the blog I wrote last week, I said Cleveland was just happy to be here. With no head coach, they're missing their best or second-best offensive lineman, depending how you feel about um, Wyatt Teller versus um, Joel Batonio. Whichever one you lean towards, without those two, without Denzel Ward, their best corner, I didn't expect much from the Browns today. I expected Pittsburgh to honestly just kind of cruise through, move the ball well, because Cleveland's defense is so just mangled. They're missing so many starters, and especially in the secondary, where I figure Pittsburgh would be able to throw the ball a little bit, and that in turn would allow them to run. But Pittsburgh, man, I don't ever want to say when it's time for a guy to retire, it should be an athlete's thing when they get to call it a career, but at some point, man, I saw spurts of the old Big Ben throughout the course of this season. I banked on Big Ben being my number two QB in my one in one of my two QB leagues in fantasy. The second QB on a two in a two team QB league where, you know, twenty five ish quarterbacks are gonna play every week, that's fine, but I don't think Ben is a Super Bowl-caliber quarterback anymore, and I think it's really time that Pittsburgh considers not a rebuild, but a reset, where they have to figure out their offense, man. That offensive line is just horrendous. None of their receivers, I mean, Juju had a nice game stats-wise, but playing from, you know, Pittsburgh was down 28 nothing at one point. Pittsburgh, Cleveland was just sitting in a soft zone and just trying to play no doubles defense for four quarters, essentially, because it was 28 nothing in the first quarter. Yeah, Juju had a nice stat line, favorable passing situations. That's why the counting stats don't tell you everything. Big Ben had more than 500 passing yards. Don't mean shit. They never had a chance of winning that game. Will say, for karma purposes, I did throw $5 on the Steelers' money line when it was at plus 590 in the third quarter, and it looked like Pittsburgh might have a chance when they got it within two scores. Just as a good juju thing to make sure that the Browns won, because I'm very happy for the Browns. I am a noted Baker Mayfield guy. Been that way since Oklahoma. I like my quarterbacks who are a little, you know, not boring. If Baker was quarterback of the Giants, I think I'd be in heaven, because Daniel Jones is bad and boring. At least Baker, when he was bad last year, he was still entertaining. I'm... Thoroughly impressed with how the Browns ran their offense today, considering Stefanski was at home watching on TV, just like the rest of us. Van Pelt did a great job managing the game, keeping the situations favorable, knowing when to use what play in what situation, stayed ahead of the chains. They ran the ball pretty damn well. Nick Chubb. I think Chubb is in that discussion with Henry and Kamara as best running back in the league. Chubb is just so electric as a ball carrier. When he gets it to the second level and he's on linebackers and defensive backs, he is so much... He's the perfect combination of speed and size. I know everyone fawns over Derrick Henry, but what we saw from Nick Chubb today was just masterful. What we saw from Kareem Hunt in the passing game, in the running game awesome. It's one of the best one-two punches at running back ever. I mean, the best one in recent memory that comes to mind was Kamara and Mark Ingram, Kamara's rookie year, where he was pretty good. Not the Kamara we know now, but he was pretty good. Pretty good. All right, 
last thing, I don't want to meander too long. I only said 30 minutes, and I'm at the 30-minute mark. I do want to mention head coaches have so many responsibilities. I understand that game management is a gut-feel kind of thing. Some of these coaches just got to look at public source information, man. You just go on Twitter and follow a couple analytics writers. You're going to run your team a little more efficiently. I, you don't have to listen to them every single time. I mean, it especially bit the Colts in the ass on Saturday where they missed the field goal. They went for it on fourth and goal at the end of the half, and then the Bills came down and scored. All I'm going to say is this. The Bills missed that fourth and goal chance to score a touchdown. The Bills came down and scored. A touchdown wasn't helping there. Yeah, excuse me, a field goal wasn't helping there. Yes, the Bills ended up winning by only three points, and that field goal they could have had instead when they went for it on fourth down. Still missed a field goal. Blankenship did boink one. You want to blame the Colts for losing, blame it on Blankenship missing the field goal, not Frank Reich playing aggressive and going trying to get a touchdown. Going for the touchdown is... Was an aggressive play. I know Ben Baldwin's model, the athletic analytics football writer, said that his model thought it was a field goal situation, not a go for it, but not a heavy. I think it was like 58% field goal. I understand why the model thought that. I think I in that situation, early in the game, I probably would have kicked the field goal as well, but I want to commend Reich for going for it. During the course of the regular season, Reich was one of the more aggressive coaches in terms of going for it on fourth down. It's why the Colts' offense was better than I thought it would be. Because personnel-wise, the Colts' skill position players, aside from Jonathan Taylor, are either unproven or kind of meh. Pittman had flashes, but Pittman is a rookie. T.Y. Hilton, he can get open. He's not the T.Y. Hilton of five years ago. Moelle Cox, Jack Doyle, they're serviceable NFL tight ends. Nothing to write home about. Colts were too conservative. Going back to point one, these coaches need to be more aggressive. Reich was aggressive, but in weird situations. I'm going to go back during the course of the week and rewatch all six of the wildcard round games for podcasting and blogging purposes. Uh, but I know from just... Off the top of my head, that last play sequence the Colts had was egregious. Reich was running their offense like it was the middle of the second quarter with 8.35 to go. They ran the ball three times with less than a minute to go with only one timeout. I, I get it. In certain situations, running the ball is the right play. Conventionally speaking, you want to run the ball on third or third and fourth down if it's less than three yards because just math if you have the right situation where if you have the right number of guys in the box where you have five guys in the box because they're playing cover two you want to run the ball because yeah because you have five offensive linemen and a tight end excuse me you have six guys in the box in the base cover two because it's the four linebacker it's the four down linemen and the two inside linebackers and then you have your six offensive guy, offensive line personnel because you keep your tight end in, tight end into block. The numbers match up. Your running back has an advantageous situation where he has to make someone miss, 
if everyone blocks, right, he doesn't have to make anyone miss, and he should be able to get to the second level. But if he only has to make one guy miss, he has an okay chance. You don't want to run into a heavier box, but that, that's not neither here nor there. That was just me explaining running the situation. It's okay to be a little bit passive and try and play for the field goal there because they trust Blankenship. You play for the tie, you get to overtime, you keep the game alive, which brings me back to my original point about playing to keep the game alive instead of playing to win. The Colts, the play design, excuse me, the play call was just piss poor those last three plays where the Bills know the Colts don't have any timeouts. They give them the middle of the field. They shade all the defensive backs to the sideline. Rivers just throws it away twice, takes a sack. Just, I understand you're out of timeouts, but you got to have something for me, Frank Reich. You're this good coach in the regular season, but you can't be making these mind-bogglingly bad calls in your play call and your aggressiveness. I think Reich is a decent coach, like Pete Carroll, like Vrabel. Decent coach. I think they get a little ner- skirt. They, I, I go out and say I think they get a little scared in these playoff games because they're so short and they're such a finite number of possessions, and they trust their defenses, which it isn't a bad thing. I, if I had a good defense, I'd be inclined to believe in it, to trust in it. The Colts had a good defense this year. The Seahawks had an okay. Pete doesn't really have an excuse. Seattle's defense was kind of good, but that was more smoke and mirrors second half of the season type thing. And just, man. And Tennessee's defense was just piss poor all season, especially on third down. Brutal on third down. I want to say they were second or third worst in the league in terms of giving up first downs on third down. Nope, not where you want to be as a coach. The two games I didn't really talk about, um, the Bears and New Orleans was a snooze. The Nickelodeon broadcast was cool. Nice idea. Some grad school student came up with that idea, and they feel very vindicated because it worked. It got a lot of engagement on social media. It got a lot of interaction. I know me and all my friends were talking about it. Me and my girlfriend were talking about it because it was entertaining. It was amusing. Yeah, it ended up being a lot more nostalgia for guys and gals in their 20s and 30s, but it was entertaining. I enjoyed seeing Michael Thomas in the slime zone, and yeah, Mitch Trubisky got the Nickelodeon MVP because all the 20 and 30-year-olds thought it was funny to vote for Mitch Trubisky. Nothing to write home about. Mitch stunk it up. The Bears couldn't throw the ball at all. New Orleans' defense is for real. New Orleans had issues. They couldn't really throw. Breeze couldn't throw the ball particularly well. I mean, they only scored 21 points. Yeah, the Bears have a legitimate defense. That's a reasonable critique of that. But Breeze got to be able to throw the ball a little bit better. You can't be doing the Taysom Hill thing, man. Not I can't go to Green Bay in two weeks doing the Taysom Hill thing. Come on now. That's just silly. Uh, Washington, Tampa Bay. Henneke had a nice game. Showed a little more life than you typically expect from a backup. He's throwing it pretty well, running all over the place. Yeah, he had a cut. had like 300-something passing yards. A lot of it was playing because they were playing catch-up the entire game. Wurfs did a great job on the offensive line. And yes, that pauses me trying to remember if it was Tristan Wurfs or Jedrick Wills on the Buccaneers. My brain, uh, football brain, you mix guys up a lot. I really have a bad habit of mixing up Devin Bush and Devin White, especially because they're both really fast inside linebackers. 
I, I, I remember that Devin White is on Tampa Bay and Devin Bush is on Pittsburgh. But, yeah, Tampa's offensive line did the job. Brady wasn't anything spectacular. Threw the ball pretty well against a pretty stout defense. Washington tried to get pressure with four. They played zone. Brady dotted up the zone. 300 passing yards. Thanks for covering the over on your passing yards, Tommy. Terrific. Kind of rough gambling weekend, but that's neither here nor there. I'll, we'll, we'll get it back next weekend. I'm not worried about it. Maybe we'll get back tomorrow for the national championship game. Which is how I'm going to wrap this up real quick. Just a minute or two on the national title game. Get you get you guys and gals out of here. To hopefully a good Monday. I expect Alabama to win this game. This is should be a very fun game to watch. Both these offenses should be able to move the ball pretty well against their respective defenses. Want to see what Sark does. Got the Texas job. See how he goes out. We all know how Lane Kiffin went out when he got the uh, FAU job where, you know, he got fired <laughs> before the national title game because he was doing Lane Kiffin things. Uh, I expect Alabama to win. This is a four-year journey. I read a story in The Athletic the other day about how this is the best one of the best recruiting classes of all time, the one that's about to graduate this year, the one that was recruited for 2017, Tua, Leatherwood, Devontae Smith, Judy, all of these insanely talented guys. They all won national, they won the national title as freshmen against Georgia in that crazy comeback where Tua came in for Jalen Hurts. Then they lost to Clemson. And then they didn't even make the playoff last year because Tua got hurt and they lost two games. Alabama team is genuinely special. The defense isn't anything great. I will say, Sertan and Olave, fun matchup. The interior Alabama defensive lineman, whose name I'm not thinking of right now, is going to have a good matchup against Wyatt Davis, the Ohio State interior offensive lineman. Trenches are going to be interesting to see how this goes. Conventionally, Alabama controls the line of scrimmage, both sides of the ball. The other team has to adapt. Ohio State's one of the few teams with the personnel on both sides. They'll, they might not be as talented, but physicality, strength-wise, they should be able to engage them at the point of attack and try and be okay in the running game. If Ohio State can get Master not Master Teague, who's out, they can get uh, Trey Sermon going. Ohio State then opens up their one-read offense, Fields gets going, then they get the play action, they get the shots down the field, they get a lave. It all goes off the running game. You saw it against Northwestern where once they got the running game going in the Big Ten title game, Fields wasn't good, but he was manageable in that game. And then you saw it against Clemson last week. Clemson's defense was guessing the entire time what was coming, and they were not prepared for the play-action shots down the field because you saw Fields uncork it with the bad, whatever you want to call that, hip, back, whatever, after he took the helmet hit from Skalski. He was fine throwing those... 55-yard bombs in the Superdome. I'm expecting a game in the high 30s, something in the ballpark of 38-31, maybe 42-38, something in that neighborhood. Expect a lot of offense from both of these teams. I'll say a pick or two from Jones and Fields. In these kind of games, you go with the guy who has the experience. I trust Saban more than I trust Ryan Day. I think Ryan Day is a good play caller. They do a good job of getting their guys in good positions to do things with the ball. Ohio State's got a good offense for college. It's creative. Gets the ball to the playmakers. Let things happen. 
be curious to see how much man Alabama plays because traditionally that's what Alabama does because they have the personnel to play man coverage or they'll do cover four stuff because they have the best corners and then they can drop everyone, make it tight in the box, that kind of thing. Where cover four kind of puts all the receivers out on an island where it's four guys dropping to cover five or six defensive zones depending how you break it up for your linebackers. I know I've gotten a lot of nuance on defense. I watched those two videos about calling defense the last few days, and they really kind of stuck with me because they were so informative and well done. I like Alabama. I don't think Alabama covers seven and a half is quite a bit. I think seven and a half, eight, depending where you look. I'll probably play Ohio State getting the eight points. I don't think they win. If they do win, Fields is going to have to have another incredible game. I don't think you can trace Sherman Alabama to death. And now that I've gotten all that off my chest and done it in only about a concise 45 minutes, get you guys out of here. Reminder, at McZararis on Twitter, Z-A-R-A-R-I-S, Gotham Ascend, the blog where I write, write things, where we have a pretty talented staff of content creators who all have day jobs and are doing this more or less for the love of the game because we want to tell stories it's really good stuff. It's a really fun team. The chat, we, the chats we produce, the ideas we come up with, we do a lot of good stuff. Great content there this week. Hockey back, Rangers, first game Thursday against the Islanders. I, Ranger blog this week, football blog tomorrow morning, a more concise analytics-based version of the, t- the diatribe I went on for the first 15 minutes about this podcast about coaches being cowards. That'll come out. I'll try and get that up, ready to go. It's been, it was written in the notes app over the course of the last day and a half. Try and get that up midday Monday. This is coming up. This will be out Monday morning. Tuesday, Bruins podcast. Sarah Griffin, very talented baseball writer. She's going to come on, talk about the Bruins. Wednesday, Levance is back to talk hoops. Thursday, Ranger game day, me by myself, trying to get myself excited for a team that I know David Quinn is going to screw up. Friday, up in the air, one of two potential guests. I'm going to try and get either a Bills fan or a Browns fan. It depends on availability. My one Bills fan friend is a SID at Stony Brook. If he's available, he will be on. If not, we're gonna we're gonna be talking some football going into the weekend. It's a divisional round. It's big things. It's a good time to be a sports fan. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Peace.